We're continuing our series there this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is God's word. When Samuel became old, he met his son's (laughs) judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take of your fields, the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out, Because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people... He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. We thank God for the reading of his word. Anna is going to give us our window on the world tonight after this short video. Do you open up your Bibles again to 1 Samuel chapter 8? And as we come to God's word, let's ask him for his help and his blessing. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, would you open our eyes to see your glory, 
and to see our sin. And Lord, by your spirit, would you teach us and change us and mold us to become more like and more in love with Jesus, we pray. In his name. Amen. Do you really know what you're asking for? I wonder if that's a question you've ever put to a friend who's asked for something without really knowing what it is. I used to have the privilege of helping to lead a team from CE out to Philadelphia a few years ago. It's a brilliant place. But would you know that, to my surprise, that some Portadown teenagers don't have the greatest international cultural competency? Shock, horror, I know. Now, you may know that we differ with Americans on certain words that we use. For example, what we would call the boot of a car, they call the trunk. What we call a pavement, they call the sidewalk. The list goes on. Well, one year we took the team over and we had some really keen Northern Irish lads getting stuck into conversations. And one of them was asked, what are you most looking forward to doing outside of summer camp? To which he said, I'm just really excited to see the city and have a bit of crack. Now he was using... The Irish word, crack, C-R-A-I-C, banter, fun, you know the word. For Philadelphians, though, crack sounds an awful lot like crack, which is a class A drug. Now, thankfully, this lad was talking to some Philadelphians pretty well acquainted with Northern Irish slang, and they were able to wind them up. They said, do you really know what you're asking for there? But once he realized what he had been saying in American terms, he realized the consequences, and thankfully, he changed the way he spoke, thank goodness. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel essentially has to ask the question, do you really know what you're asking for? But instead of consequences being realized and ways being changed by the people, his advice is ignored and at a terrible cost, a cost to the nation with long-lasting consequences. From the end of chapter 7 to the start of chapter 8, there's a bit of a gap in time that's taking place. By now, Samuel is pretty old, and now his sons are judges over Israel as well. Now, they're more local judges over a specific town or city, not on a national scale. But Joel and Abijah, to put it mildly, they're not great. They don't walk in Samuel's ways. They're corrupt. They're very sinful. It's the same old pattern that Israel has really gotten used to, unfortunately. And it's worth noticing where they are in relation to Samuel geographically. They're in a city called Beersheba. That's about 50 miles away from where Samuel is located. And so actually their sinful activity, it's, it's kind of behind Samuel's back. It's beyond the reach of his authority. But the elders of Israel... They see the sin of Samuel's sons, and they use this to jump at the opportunity to get something that they want, a king. If you look at verses 4 and 5, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They say to Samuel about his son's behavior, trying to almost make their request kind of holy-ish. But at the very end of that request, they give away their heart. They give away their motivation. 
Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Truth be told, they don't really care about the sins of Samuel's sons. They're not really looking for a hereditary line of rulers. That's not what they want. I mean, they already have that with Samuel and his sons. They don't really want a special judge, as they say. They already have judges. What they want is to be like all the nations. They want to be like the world. And they want it so badly, they're willing to reject God and his messenger to get there. Initially, Samuel actually thinks he has been rejected, but then he goes to God and God says to him in verse 7, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. This is a this is a nation, this is a group of people that were called by God to be faithful to him, to love him with all their heart and soul and might. Exclusive love and faithfulness towards God, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 tells us. And more than that, they were called to be a nation that was holy, that was set apart, that was distinctly different than the nations around them. Deuteronomy 14 verse 2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. These are people who have been called to be faithful to God and so be radically different from the world in essentially every conceivable manner. But instead, in order just to be like all the nations, they're faithless and they reject God forsaking him and serving other gods. Do you know there are hellish consequences to rejecting God's standard and rule and reign and longing after the world instead? Ultimately, rejection of God does lead to hell unless we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And you can do that tonight if you haven't because his blood has been shed for you. But there's not just hell to come. There's hell now. There's wrath here and now. And that is seen primarily in how God allows us to actually have our desires. Romans 1, 24 to 25 tells us that for those who rejected the Lord, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God would do the same for Israel. He would give them over to their desires. But not without warning. The Lord commissions Samuel with solemnly warning the people of the realities of their demands. He sends Samuel to essentially ask them, do you really know what you're asking for? And so you see that Samuel goes to the people and he asks that question and he sends out the warning. And the warning is heavy hitting. It's full on. If you you cast your eye from verses 10 to 18, you'll see a verb and then a type of verb appear many times. The first verb appearing is the word take. It appears six times. Samuel warns that the king will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields, vineyards, and orchards. He will take a tenth of your grain and wine. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and he will take your servants, men, and donkeys. The king is going to take 
what is yours, God says. And the other type of verb, well, it's a, it's a, it's a verb of work or enslavement. And you see this. You see that God's people will have to run and plow and reap and make. And they will be put to work and be made to be slaves. God's people are rejecting the God who brought them from Egypt, the God who brought them from slavery in order to choose slavery. You want to be like the world, God asks? You will be robbed and you will be enslaved. What's yours will be taken from you and you'll be put to work. How different is that from the way God works, the God who frees us and gives to us? And ultimately, God says, verse 18, In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You know, the phrase cry out, it's used a lot in the book of Judges, if you read through that. And basically, every time it's used in the book of Judges, it's God's people crying for God's help when they're being oppressed by foreign rulers. The difference here is that this oppression comes from within. This is of their own doing. This is them getting what they wanted. But they ignore Samuel. The people hear the warning, they say, no. Verse 19, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. God says to Samuel, okay, obey their voice and make them a king. They ignore the warning and they get what they want. God gives them over to their desires. This is the second time, actually, in the, in the book of First Samuel, that an individual has been requested of the Lord. The first time is back in chapter 1. It's a much better request. It's a request from Hannah where she asks for a son. And the Lord hears her and he grants her request. And so she names him Samuel, which means heard by God. And where that was a godly request by a godly woman on an individual level. Compare that to the corrupt elders making an evil request on a national level. Completely different, but nonetheless heard and answered. And they will be given for a king, Saul, the name Saul being derived from the Hebrew word ask. The difference between him and Samuel. And he will start a long line of kings that will take from Israel. It will start a kingly rule in Israel of corruption and disaster and war and trouble. But ultimately God will give them what they ask for. What does the Lord have to teach us from this sad episode in his word? I I believe this story urges us to look at ourselves and, and reassess who or what we want to rule in every aspect of our lives. You know, it's very easy to read this and see the whole thing play out and say to ourselves, these guys are idiots. Who would do that? Why would they want this? But if we do that, we miss the point entirely. We need to look at our own hearts because we're people who do this time and time again. We need to look at our own lives and by God's help see our own sin and see our own desires to assess What standards do we want to live our life by? By what standards are we living? Who do we want to be king in our life? 
Do we want to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus, the King who loves us, who gives us grace, who frees us from our sins, who calls us to everlasting life? Or do we reject him to be like the world? Do we realize that we can't be like the world and be faithful to Jesus? Where, where are we prone to reject God's rule on our lives? And do, do we realize the consequences of that? Do we really know what we're asking for when we live that way? I think one of the main lessons, it's maybe not so obvious from this at first glance, one of the lessons that we need to learn here is about leadership. If you look at the passage and you look at who made the decision to gather together and corner Samuel and make demands of him and of the Lord, rejecting God's kingship and seeking a king elsewhere, who made the decision to ignore good advice and stark warnings? The elders. You see that in verse 4. The leaders of the people, those who had responsibility for the welfare of the people, those under their care. Those who should have known better than anyone else God's call upon his people to be faithful, solely devoted to him and holy, set apart from the world to God. Not like the other nations. But these were the people who are faithless to God. Who look at his standards and his way of doing things, compare that to the sinful pagan practices of the nations around them and conclude, God's got it wrong. Do you know, in, in modern society... Um, I think it can be very easy for people to look at the world and look at the church, see that there's a bit of disparity between the two, and come to the conclusion that maybe God's got it wrong, or at least he's a bit outdated, or maybe his ways of doing things are inefficient. Just need to look at what the world values and celebrates. And it would be easy to come to the understanding from media and social media that the church is archaic and it needs to change. It needs to change its values. It needs to come in line with this, even this new legislation that's being imposed in Northern Ireland. It needs to become, quote, more accepting. And when people demand that and when leaders of churches give in to that, to become like all the nations, as it were, they don't know what they're asking for. They think that they're opening up the gateway to freedom, but just like Israel were promised, it isn't freedom that they'll get, but enslavement. They'll be robbed of life and put to work. Elders and leaders in churches, they have a responsibility to make sure that the church's standards are in line with those of King Jesus. That the church submits to the rule and reign of King Jesus, not the world. And I want to be careful when I say this, but as much as it is a reality for a lot of churches at the moment with different standards in the world, leaders leading people astray in terms of believing not truth anymore, but lies and giving in to the extreme demands of the world, I don't think that's the particular threat that we at First Porter Down need to learn here in terms of leadership. Now, I'm not saying that we're never going to ever have to wrestle with that. Absolutely not. Uh, we're susceptible to sin, all sorts of sin, like everybody else. But I think in First Porter Down, we are probably more easily tempted to give in to the standards of the world and reject Jesus in a much more subtle way. 
here's what I mean. A church this size, this is a big church. It's got a lot of people. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's got programs and activity. There's a buzz around the place. There's a need for people and finance and service. I think we're far more likely to treat people like the world does in that way and accept the world's standards for how we treat and view people. You know, it's easy to look at how the secular world treats its employees, our volunteers, or those who compete against it. The world treats people with little to no dignity. And it's easy for us to look at that and, well, accept those standards and how we relate to those in our church family and even other churches. And when we do that, we reject Jesus and we become like all the other nations instead of coming under the rule of Jesus and being distinct. The church, for example, isn't a business. And it shouldn't be run as such. If it is, then it's not run as Jesus would want it to be. You know, it can be easy for leaders of organizations to look at other organizations, whether that's within the same church or other churches, and view them as competition instead of co-workers for the gospel. It's easy for us to look at other churches and see them as competition instead of another part of the body of Christ. It's often quite easy for us to treat those who serve under us or alongside us or even above us, not with love and grace, not, with, not as brothers or sisters, but instead attempt to rule with an iron fist and a list of demands that we know they can't and won't keep. And that's just like the world would. For us as people, it's easy to be cynical when it comes to the actions of others. The world is a cynical place. Instead of being gracious and hoping all things as love does, assuming good motives. In how we treat people and talk to people and try to get things done and done to certain standards, it's possible that we can slip into being ungodly in our service of God? Is it possible that in that we're really just serving ourselves and so rejecting Jesus? You know, we can convince ourselves that so often we're doing the right thing, but by what standards? God's? Are we just like the world? Are we holy? Are we really no different? Are we out for our own gain, our own preferences, not caring what God or anybody else has to say, rejecting Christ's kingship on our lives? If we live that way, we're just like the people of Israel. When we treat others not as spiritual siblings, but as commodities or competition, we're just like the world. And whether we realize it or not, we're the same as Israel. We're rejecting God in order to be like the world. We are sinning and we don't know what we're asking for. We're asking for misery and pain and stress and relational trouble. We're rejecting the rule of Jesus Christ. We're robbing ourselves of the joy that he gives us, the joy that is already ours if we belong to Jesus Christ. We're robbing ourselves of the witness to those around us and we're enslaving ourselves. We're putting ourselves to work. Instead of resting in Christ's grace and his promises and his blessings. King Jesus, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to working alongside each other, when it comes to the church, he calls us to hold to his standards of outdoing one another and showing honor. 
being devoted to one another in brotherly love. So if you're a leader, whether that's an elder or committee or with an organization, or you just happen to be someone people look up to, and that can be you, whether you're 18 or 80, you've got to set the standard in holding to Christ's standards. Sitting under his rule, you know, it's so much easier to want a different king. It's so much easier to want to be like the world, but that's not how we'll flourish. That's how we'll be enslaved and worked to our death. There will be no joy and no peace and we'll wither and we'll die. And it'll be of our own doing. We'll get what we asked for. Moving from church to us as individuals, what can we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 8? Well, the call from the Lord to Israel to be faithful to him and to be holy, set apart, to be different, that same call is put on the lives of believers today. That's the same call to you and me if we love Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. Scripture calls us time and time again to be holy. 1 Peter 2, 9 reminds us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be faithful and holy in all aspects of our life. That is how we show we live under the rule of Jesus, not the, not the rule of the world. But we know it's hard to live like that, isn't it? It's hard to live like that, especially when you look at how society is set up. For example, children are from a young age geared towards the false king of success. Whether that's academically, financially, popularity, athletically, even in terms of health. Success is the king that the world serves. You're told that from an early age. I use that term success very loosely, by the way. Success is tied up with the false king of comfort. The more successful you'll be, the more comfortable you'll be in life. The less worries you have, the more you'll be able to enjoy the finer things of life. You'll be known as a somebody, not a nobody. Or so the world tells us. But you just need to look at the rich and famous to see, firstly, that's just not true. They are miserable. And secondly, the pain and misery they live their lives in prove this passage to be correct. When you reject God's standards, when you reject Christ as king, to be like the world, to be like the nations, you're enslaved and you're put to work. We don't even need to look at others to know this to be true, really. We can just look to ourselves. If we look at our own hearts, we can see the misery that we cause to ourselves by going after false kings. When we crave comforts, not the comforts the gospel promises us, but the comforts of this world, we'll become enslaved to them. We'll always want more. And we're no different than those who don't yet believe in Jesus. Whether that's a bigger house or a nicer car, That will work us and that will rob from us. That will drain us of our money and our time and our joy. Whether it's the promotion that will rob us of our time, maybe even time with family. Whether it's the pursuit of popularity that will rob you of your joy. These things cannot bring pleasure or life that lasts. And God will allow us to have those things. He will allow us to have what we desire and end up miserable for us to find that they are empty and worthless things. To find out that we didn't know what we were asking for. 
as a church and as individuals, we need to ask ourselves, what are we asking for in this life? To live under the standards of the world? Ultimately, that means we'll be robbed and enslaved. There is no joy or life in that. Are we people who seek to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus? A king who calls us to be radically different from the world in every conceivable manner, whether that's finances, our time, how we raise our children, or what we value, because he is a different king in every conceivable manner. Whereas the king that Samuel warned of would take and take and take and enslave and work and use, Jesus could not be more different as a king. Jesus Christ is a king who does not steal. He does not rob. He does not take what is not his. But he is a king who generously gives. Instead of taking what is good from us, he takes our sin upon himself. And he gives us his blood, his life, his everything. Will a king like that not graciously give us everything? As he shares with us the blessings of heaven. He's not a king that enslaves us to work us into the ground. But he's a king who serves our every need. And because he is an almighty king. An all knowing king. An all loving king. He knows our every need. And he will meet our every need. That is a king worth living for. What are you asking for in this life? What are you living for? Do you desire to be subject to this world? To be robbed and enslaved? Without Jesus, that's all there is. Or do you seek to live for Jesus? Who gives you himself? Who shares his blessings and his benefits? And promises to serve you eternally? Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know our motivations. You know our our thoughts. You know what competes for our attention and our love. Father, would you help us to see that to reject you and go after this world only leads to disaster. It can only be a path to misery and despair. But with Jesus Christ, we have a king who gives us himself and who serves our every need. Lord, help us to live for a king like that, we pray in his name. Amen.